Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Dr. Pam Popper is a naturopath and internationally recognized expert on nutrition, medicine, and health, and the executive director of Wellness Forum Health. She's been featured in many widely distributed documentaries, including Processed People and Making a Killing, and appears in a new film, Forks Over Knives, which played in major theaters throughout North America in 2011. She's one of the co-authors of the companion book, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for 66 weeks. Her most recent book is Food Over Medicine, The Conversation That Can Save Your Life. And Carol, I remember you talking about Dr. Campbell's information on the China Project in the early 90s as well. Absolutely, Claire. I thought that was going to make a major difference in people's diets all over the country. But really, very little changed until now. And films like Forks Over Knives and people like our guest, Pam Popper, are the reason things are really changing. So welcome to the show, Pam. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. So we'd like you to start with the China Project and and then uh, cover as much as you can about that great study, and then you can bring it up to date with the Wellness Forum Health and what you are doing at that organization to spread this knowledge. Well, I'll answer both of your questions, and they become intertwined at some point in time. So, um, you know, Colin Campbell... Uh, was a biochemist and and professor at Cornell University and began many years before I was ever in this business doing uh, first experiments with lab animals to see what would happen if animals were fed varying diets to basically look at the effect of diet on cancer. And um, his initial lab uh, experiments were quite interesting because when the animals were fed a diet that uh, contained 5% of calories from protein, even when given cancer-promoting chemicals like aflatoxin, the animals did not develop cancer. But when they were given um, a diet that was 20% of calories consisting of animal protein, 100% of the animals developed cancer. What was really interesting was that manipulating the percentage of animal food in the diet um, would cause the tumors to grow and recede and grow and recede. So there was a, a very clear connection made. Now, Dr. Campbell would tell you if he was on the show that, that animal experimentation has limited usefulness with humans. You just don't know what's going to happen when you start um, doing, looking at, at human response to food. And, of course, we have laws in this country. You can't, uh, you can't administer aflatoxin to people and feed them varying diets to see if they develop cancer. But um, the, the lucky break, if you want to call it that, was when China began normalizing relations with the United States and uh, academics started going back and forth from China to the United States, the United States to China, and through all of that, uh, the discovery was made that the premier of China had had cancer, was very interested in the topic, and had um, gathered a group of 600 and some thousand researchers to look at the death rates from cancer, 12 different types of cancer all over the country, and they literally surveyed almost every uh, Chinese citizen 
uh, to develop that data. And what was striking about it is in a country that was really closed off from the rest of the world, pretty ethnically pure, there was a lot of variation in the death rates from certain types of cancer in one part of the country versus another. And that led to the China study, which was a very thorough uh, 376 data points um, and 94,000 conclusions, not all of which were important, but about 8,000 of which were, that looked at the connection between what some of these Chinese people were eating and their health, um, their health risks. And so anyway, that was going on. I didn't know Colin Campbell. I wasn't in this field. But um, in uh, the year 2000, or the year 1994, I think it was, um, a friend loaned me a book written by John McDougall, who was in Forks Over Knives with me. That was my actual introduction to this. I didn't know about Colin Campbell at the time, and I decided to change my diet and, and uh, look at taking care of myself differently and eventually um, got enthusiastic enough about this to um, go back to school and, and start another career and open up Wellness Forum Health. And uh, so um, what we do at our company is to help people make informed decisions about their health care looking at diets and tests and drugs and treatments and surgeries and supplements, all the things that people have to decide about with health and make good decisions. And so um, anyhow, we've been in business for 20 years. This year is our 20th anniversary. And about 15 years ago, I called Colin Campbell on the phone after I found out that um, uh, that he had done all this research and um, invited him to come and speak in Columbus. That's how he and I met. And uh, shortly after that, he wrote the China study. And, of course, I promoted that like crazy. I thought everybody should read it. We became good friends. We ended up, it was uh, he that made the introduction to Brian Wendell that uh, allowed me to be part of making Forks Over Knives. And so that's how the two stories come together. And today... Uh, Dr. Campbell speaking at our conference this fall. There's still a very close connection. Um, one of my business partners is the co is the author of uh, two of the China Study cookbooks. One that came out last year. One that will come out this year. And um, uh, so we're we're very closely intertwined. So that's um, that's basically how the story came together. And then uh, just to tell you a little bit about what we do here that might be interesting to your listeners, um, as I mentioned, we are, our primary business is informed medical decision-making. Uh, we, um, I operate a practice here. We have uh, providers all over the country. We train how to do this. We have members in 35 different countries who take our classes. We're firm believers that education is the key to making good decisions. Uh, we manufacture food here. We own a school to train healthcare professionals. So we do a lot of different things. It sounds like a very long list, but the unifying factor is the best healthcare available um, by in, by helping people to learn about these things before they do them. I mean, a big big shortcoming in healthcare, and this is quite evident in the uh, in the film, is that people are told all the wonderful benefits of taking drugs and having surgeries, but they're not necessarily told the truth about their efficacy, and they're certainly not told about the side effects or that other options are available, and that's where we fit in. So that's my story. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. I, I am really impressed. And so I want to, I'm going to cover all of this. So, and basically what we want, the show today, we're going to be focusing on filmmakers, our most dedicated, independent filmmakers who, Pam, worked really hard hours. They are the most dedicated and uh, the least paid, in my opinion, 
of all of the people in our film industry, and they really need advice on what to eat. They work long, hard hours. They are under a lot of stress all the time, and you've got the answers. So basically, this this show is for them. So uh, I'll get more specific on questions, but the point is how to be stay happy, stay healthy, and produce uh, documentary films that keep bringing the information to the public. So back where you said there were 8,000 of the uh, data, eight uh, important uh, conclusions on health risks, so you basically are working with that group, that that information. Is this correct? Well, that's that's part of the information. Uh, Dr. Campbell's research was in the area of um, of diet and health, and our, inf- our our information includes that. But um, a, a good example of of how this all comes together, why why does, is all this stuff connected? Is that you know somebody will come into my office who has risk factors for cardiovascular disease and um, might be taking a statin drug and blood pressure pills, for example, blood pressure medication. Well, when we take a look at, this is the informed decision-making process, somebody looks at the data and says, my gosh, according to the drug makers' websites, which is the best place to get information about the drugs, they acknowledge that the combined risk of, or the, the risk reduction from taking statin drugs is seven-tenths of one percent. I think most people think they're a whole lot more effective than that. So this can sometimes motivate somebody <laughs> to say, well, maybe maybe I should look at some other options, and that's where we say to people, there is another option. You can lower your cholesterol with diet. Most of the time, 90-some percent of the time, you can lower your cholesterol with the right diet. It's, it is effective for reducing risk in substantive ways, and you don't have all those side effects associated with the drugs, blood pressure drugs. I mean, you really hurt more people than you help if, they're, if they have mildly elevated blood pressure. So wouldn't it be smarter to use diet and exercise and weight loss as a means for lowering your blood pressure instead of taking drugs drugs that are marginally effective? I mean, I'm being kind when I say this, um, that have pages of side effects. And so um, the import, we use the information that Dr. Campbell gleaned from China and for so many other people have, have piggybacked on. I mean, Neil Barnard's done studies showing that you can reverse type 2 diabetes in, in a matter of weeks using the right diet. Um, and, on, and I could go on and on with researchers who have done important work in this area, but uh, this connection between diet and health and the choices that you make in health are, are quite significant. Yes, I know Barnard. Neil Barnard, I've interviewed him before, and he is such a dedicated, brilliant man. I really honor him for the work he does for all of us. And he's just opened a clinic in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you know about this, but uh, he's hoping, I think, to do this in other areas, which would be great. We need everybody working on this who uh, possibly can. But uh, it's a Barnard Clinic, and um, his goal is to do two things. It's to actually make this model of health care available to people who live in the greater Washington, D.C. area, and also to um, use the clinic as a way to do more research, enroll more people in studies to show that all kinds of conditions are affected by diet. He's been doing studies, for example, on diet and migraine, diet and rheumatoid arthritis, diet and diabetic neuropathy. His, uh, he published some studies on diabetic neuropathy last year, and it's astounding, but just almost everybody who converts to the type of diet that we're all talking about, their neuropathy resolves within a fairly short period of time. And again, looking at it from an informed decision-making um, uh, view, if you take a look at Lyrica, which is a heavily advertised drug for people who have diabetic neuropathy, um, it's 
not particularly effective, certainly not as much as advertised, but the side effects are heinous. Well, you know, the side effects of eating sweet potatoes and broccoli, not so bad. <laughs> so it's a much better, much better alternative. So I'm very excited about Barnard's efforts because I think that we'll have more research on more conditions, and, um, and that's really what we need. I mean, we know that you are what you eat, and just about anything that's wrong with you is going to be better if you eat better. But, boy, will it be helpful to have more data. Absolutely. One of the things that I uh, that I have uh, thought about in what you just talked about is that you mentioned broccoli, for example. Um, you know, if we think of food as medicine, and of course, with the right combination of things that go into our foods, I recently read that broccoli, for example, if it's cooked, uh, many of the um, uh, helpful nutrients are diminished. So much that if you add mustard powder to broccoli, it helps bring back out the the benefits of of what you originally wanted to to have from the broccoli. For example, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna make things really simple for you. Okay, um, the the first thing is that um, cooking does not diminish food as much as people might think. Um, in some places, like rural China, they cook almost everything because it's not safe to eat raw food. Um, and actually, cooking will, heating food, particularly just the, the heat factor, will bring forth more bioavailability of some nutrients. So, for example, the sulforaphane in broccoli, it's actually a little more bioavailable if you steam the broccoli versus eat it raw. Same thing is true with the lycopene and tomatoes. So one of the things that we try to do here is to make this diet accessible to people by taking away some of the layers of things that make it appear to be very confusing. And so um, I, I, you know, I, I think everybody's trying to help a lot out in the community, but, but uh, people are busy, and while we can stress the importance of eating really, really well, and, and I think it is important because, as I mentioned before, we are what we eat, we've got to make eating fit in, good eating, healthy eating, fit in with other people's lifestyles. So they're sometimes flabbergasted to hear me say, if you need to microwave your food, go on ahead and do it. Buy pre-washed greens, steam things. If you hate raw cruciferous vegetables, eat them steamed. If you don't like kale, don't eat it because you will never survive 50 years eating food you hate. So we try to really work around people's um, likes and dislikes of foods, show them marvelous ways to prepare things, make it fit conveniently into their um, into their daily lives and not focus on on things that are not quite as important. So, in fact, I'm filming an interesting video for our members' website uh, this week called A Tour of Dr. Pam Popper's Kitchen. And we're actually going to go over to my house, and we're going to show that I have canned beans and pre-washed greens and pre-sliced mushrooms and uh, steam-fresh microwavable vegetables and rice and that sort of thing because it's important for me to eat the right food. And if I only have a half hour to prepare dinner before I have to get on the phone and teach for four hours at night, it's got to be the right food, and it's got to be easy to do. So anyhow, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, today uh, it's so easy because there are so many options available to people that we didn't used to have. Is that film going to be available for us to, to find on your website as well? How can we if, see this film? If you're a member, this is, these are uh, member benefits. We, we provide a lot of free information here, by the way. We send out a newsletter filled with content every Monday. Anybody can sign up for it. And on Tuesday and Thursday, we send out video clips, which is my analysis of news in healthcare. 
um, not just about diet, but about a lot of other factors too. So um, anyway, but people can people can get those things for free, and um, it's a it's a massive amount of content over the course of a year. And then if they're if they are actually members, then they can get we have like 150 videos on our members site. Well, that's incredible. What is the cost for membership? very inexpensive. Virtual membership is only $99 for your first year, and it includes um, two ex- two courses we know are important for you to take. One is informed medical decision-making, how to read your blood test results, what questions you should be asking your doctor, uh, that sort of thing, how to find various healthcare providers. And then, um, uh, then the other one is Wellness 101, which is our science and skills for optimal diet and lifestyle. And then they have access to the member site, which has about 150 workshops on it. We post a new one almost every Wednesday. Um, they get favorable prices on our national conferences and other educational programs and that sort of thing. Well, when you say 150 workshops, now these are recorded, videotaped workshops that you could look at? Yeah, video and audio. Sometimes if the people are long distance, we have to do interviews that are audio, but lots of video, lots of locally produced video. Uh, and, and the videos and, and audio workshops cover everything from you know, vitamin D to how to exercise when you have a banged up knee to if you're going to yoga classes, five or six things that you need to watch in your posture, cancer treatment, cooking classes. I mean, name a topic. We've got at least one workshop on it, I think. Oh, my goodness. That's a wealth of information, man. That is very little money. That's great to know. Thank you. Right. Thank no. you. Well, we want to make this accessible to everybody. We've always based our business on the idea that we'd rather have thousands and thousands and thousands of people who can pay a little bit of money to make content available instead of um, pricing things so that only a, a few can afford it. Right. Okay. I think, Claire, I think we should add that as a gift to our uh, the grant, the Roy Dean grant that we give, because this is what filmmakers really yeah. need all what a great idea, yes. And, uh, and you know, the filmmakers, one of the things is they work such long hours. And there's really not a whole lot a person can do to make up for lack of rest. But the right nutrition can 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 make a big difference. It absolutely can, and um, and and by the way, this this has application even beyond filmmaking. I mean, the way that people work today, and I include myself in this, is long days, and sometimes by choice. I mean, I love what I do, so I, I always want people to understand when I talk about putting in an 18-hour day. I'm not dragging my feet through the day, wishing I was doing something else. I love this, and I and I love the opportunities that I have to work with people, and I could do it 24 hours a day if I could not sleep, but you have to sooner later but um but the point is that if you want to get the the most out of your day if you want to if you want if you're like one of a person like me i've always said i suffer from this disease called f-o-m-s i'll tell you what that stands for fear of missing something all right so so i not only want to work and do all the opportunities that come my way as a result of my profession and my company here but i want to go to the ballet and the symphony and i belong to a book club and a new restaurant opens up in town and i have good friends and you know i love to do all all kinds of things and i take yoga class and i love um, exercise and running and i have a a house near the beach in port clinton and so the list goes on so how do you do that and not just drive yourself into the ground or an early grave well if you take excellent care of your body it is amazing what your body will do for you. Uh, 
And um, and we, I mean, think about it. Think about how hard living was and how much effort and energy humans had to expend every day just to survive and find enough food. I mean, that just really goes to the stamina of the human body. Well, we still are built that way. We're built for endurance. So if you stay hydrated, you drink enough water every day, and you eat optimal food, you put the best fuel in the tank you possibly can, um, you uh, exercise, you keep your body healthy and lean and that sort of thing, you're not going to over, I mean, you're not going to prevent yourself from aging. I get older every day and I can't do anything about that. You're not going to keep yourself from dying. Sooner or later, we're all going to do that. Um, and you certainly are going to have to sleep sooner or later. Even I have to do that. But the bottom line is that you do not have to drag your body through every day thinking, oh my gosh, if I could just sleep for an hour, I'd feel fine. You can actually have a lot of energy to do all of the things that you want to do and feel great while you're doing them and actually require less sleep. I mean, I know that I'm pretty careful about my diet, but even a minor digression, um, you know, that lasts for a couple of days over a celebration or something of that nature, and I'll need a little bit more sleep than usual. But it's just astounding how sturdy your body can be if you just take care of it. And so people will often say, okay, I get what you're saying, but uh, did you hear me tell you how busy I am and I don't have time for this and I don't have time for that? I will assure you that that little bit of time that you invest in the eating well and going to the gym and that sort of thing, you will get it back in in huge amounts of um, more efficiently getting things done and that sort of thing. So I'm just as busy as any of the people that we would be talking about here. Um, The hour and a half that I go to hot yoga, that is why I can still be this alert at 11 o'clock at night teaching a class on the phone, it's worth the investment of the hour and a half so that I can go until 11 o'clock at night. So sometimes we have to do a little convincing with busy executives to get them to see that. Um, but uh, once they see it and then they try it and then they say the same thing, I just I can't believe it. I mean, I have more energy than I did when I was a teenager. Mm. So, you know, one thought that crosses my mind is that um, if somebody were to go to a health food store like, say, Whole Foods or Sprouts or Trader Joe's, there's a lot of very interesting products on the shelves. But just because it's in a health food store does not necessarily mean that it is as healthy as you might think. Would you agree? I agree. And, and, and along that line, this is where things get really confusing and where I think sometimes people are led to believe that it's harder than it has to be. So you go into Trader Joe's and they do have fabulous things. Whole Foods does. Um, every location is a little bit different. depends on where you are in the country. But you go into these places and, and you can pick up something you know, that has, uh, you know, it, it looks like some uh, exotic vegetable uh, Indian dish or something like that. You think, boy, that, it's all vegetables. It must be good. You look at the ingredients list, and, and, and the first sign that maybe something's not quite so good is when you see that the ingredients list goes on for four paragraphs. That's not a good mm-hmm. sign. But, you know, it's got dairy products in it and sugar and all kinds of stuff, and you say, boy, that's vegetables, but it's awful. Um, so you put it down. Um, but the other side of it is people will say things like this. Well, the only beans they had were canned, and the only, you know, the, the rice, they had frozen rice, and, and you microwave it. You shouldn't microwave food, right? And I tell them, no, read the ingredients list. Believe Believe me, nobody's sitting in my office with lupus because they ate canned beans, okay? They're sitting in my office with diseases because they were eating beef instead of beans. And um, nobody's in here with cancer because they microwave their food. They're in here with cancer because they smoke cigarettes or drank too much or they're overweight or they um, eat too much animal food or dairy or whatever. So, 
So don't get carried away then being such a purist that you don't take advantage of the really good stuff these stores have to offer. So I do a lot of shopping at Trader Joe's, and one of the reasons I send people there is their prices are great. They really do make the healthy food accessible to all populations. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, uh, they're well, they're listen, the favorite we store. We always cooked our beans, and it's really hard for me to buy canned beans. So, and yet, I think it would be a nice thing to have handy for an emergency. So, do you trust? Uh, what type of beans do you trust at Trader Joe's? Uh, the ones that say beans and water. And I just want to clarify, everybody has to make their own decisions about these kinds of things, um, but a lot of this is time-driven, all right? Again, we're trying to get people to do this. And so one of the, and I'm sure you've had your share of people say, um, I, I, I see the wisdom in what you're saying, but this is just too hard, okay? So making it hard is, is counterproductive to getting it done. And so I keep coming back to the fact that we have to keep our eye on the ball. What are we really trying to get people to do here? All right, We are really trying to get them to eat plant food. And we're not going to get them to do that if they think they've got to cut back their work hours, sell their children, (laughs) stop sleeping, uh, discontinue their relationships with their friends. You know, this, this is counterproductive. So, so we take advantage of every convenient thing we can find for people to do. Now, we have, we have people here who have all day long to worry about. They, they, they can soak beans and they can cook rice from scratch and they don't ever have to use a mix and, you know, all that sort of thing. And, and that's, that is wonderful. But, but it is just not the way the vast majority of people live and function. And, and, fa- and, and to be quite honest, if it were the way it had to be, I'd have to drop out because um, I'm just as busy as some of these film producers you're talking about, and food shopping and preparation can't take a whole lot of time. It's got to be optimal because I can't function if it's not optimal. But, but I, I can't be Hannah Homemaker and pull this thing off. So mm-hmm. anyway... So, you know, the the key is is reading labels. I think that's what we really want to focus on is reading labels because you can pick up a can of beans at a, a traditional traditional grocery store and find an awful lot of preservatives and and that sort of thing. But um but a good can of beans just says beans and water. Okay. And, uh, the sim- the simplest ingredients. You know, I like when you pick up the package of rice and it says rice. <laughs> the package of oatmeal. <laughs> ingredients. Oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to aluminum and you know fifty five other things in the in the list, so I tell people look for those things that have a very simple list of ingredients and that you you absolutely uh recognize. I had somebody f- call me from a grocery store back in the days when we first started said said um I'm looking at a can of something and it has uh it has this chemical in it. I don't know how to pronounce it. Let me uh, let me let me spell it for you. So she did, and I said, "Does that grow on trees? Is it is, does it come out of the ground? <laughs> is it, <laughs> if it's made in a factory, maybe you should just put that back." <laughs> well said. That's a great rule of thumb. Well, all right. Well, let's talk about tell us what foods can you suggest to keep on the crew table. During the day, that would give uh, filmmakers high energy because they always have a snack table out. Yeah, and um, and the first thing that I would say, let's talk a little bit about um, about how you start this because some of the worst experiences that have happened in trying to convert 
food and the schools and at the work site and that sort of thing is when one fine day people show up and the food's all different and there's been no preparation and people are going what's this and and why are we having this and where are the chicken nuggets and i i'm used to having french fries and all that kind of stuff um so that would be the the first thing is let's just have a a, a minute to talk about um about uh, how to how to do this. I think the first thing is just to tell people we're going to start serving healthier food and to intersperse some really delicious dishes um, that are accessible. In other words, you know, vegan sushi may not be the first thing you want to put out. Let's start with something that people might really relate to, like a you know spaghetti with marinara sauce or a lasagna or a chili that just doesn't have the meat in it, that kind of thing. So, so do some tastings, and then eventually, as people acclimate a little bit to the new food and, and express some likes and dislikes, you can start to shift the table. Um, so that can help with meals. And then for snacks, um, fruit is a good snack. Um, and um, and and uh, wraps are terrific. Like uh, w- one of my favorite things that I have at home that's really good and it, it works well in this setting too because almost everybody likes it. Is you just take black beans and rice and salsa, mix it up and roll it up in whole grain tortillas. They keep in the fridge, by the way, for five or six days. That's great food to put out. It's filling. Most people like black beans, rice, and salsa. I mean, there's, you don't get a whole lot of objection even from the carnivores on foods like that. Um, vegetables and hummus. You know, celery and carrots all kind of cut up vegetables and fat-free hummus. Um, salsa and 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 uh, sliced mushrooms. Uh, those would be some of the snacky types of foods that you can put out. And then the more you focus on carbohydrate food, the better off you are because carbohydrate is the energy currency of the body. So if you want your your production crew or your employees, you want everybody running around like the Energizer Bunny, you've got to give them the fuel that causes them to be able to operate that way, and that's the high-carbohydrate food. So notice all the things I'm talking about, the vegetables, the fruits, the pasta, the beans, all those things, those are high-carbohydrate foods. Great. Well, and then as far as um, the you know, the actual home cooking, this piece, when you were talking about cans of beans and things like that, um, this is probably just a a minor detail, but I know that um, these days more and more companies are starting to use canned goods that are BPA-free. And, uh, you know, for those who don't know what that is, would would you share a little bit about that and, 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 uh, you know, perhaps share some ideas around that issue? Well, I don't think it's as important as people think it is, um, and, and I'm going to tell you why. It, it, and I want to make sure that my comments are not misconstrued here. I don't think, I think we should be conscious of chemicals. I do. Um, and this is not an advertisement for we don't care about chemicals in the atmosphere here. We don't care about chemicals in food. We do care about that stuff. But the amount of, the part of the pro, there are several problems involved in um, making this connection between chemicals and disease. And the first one is the way that the research is conducted. Um, a lot of times the, the amounts of, of the various substances used are, are bizarre. I mean, I, I saw one study. I don't think people should eat bologna, for example. I'm, I'm going to put that out there first. But I saw a study that one of the ingredients in bologna is bad for you. And the reference was feeding a group of rats the equivalent of 2,700 bologna sandwiches a day for three months now, I don't. I, I know some people who eat badly, but I don't know anybody who eats 2,700 bologna sandwiches a day. So the point that I'm making is that that study 
doesn't really show that this particular chemical is bad for you, okay? I think there are other reasons to discount eating bologna instead of trying to take this chemical that's in bologna and blow it out of proportion. And so my point in all of this is that there is actually not a lot of evidence that supports a cause and effect relationship between chemicals in cans, for example, and disease. And so again, when we're trying to get somebody here who is a little resistant to doing this, specifically because of the time involved, when we're showing them how to do this, we want them eating beans instead of beef and broccoli instead of french fries, all right? And so if they're going to microwave frozen broccoli and they're going to eat beans from cans that might have BPA, and that's the way way that we're going to get them to do this, that's the way we have to get them to do it because the alternative is the person looks at this very um, perfectionistic approach to it, which in a per- if, if the world was a perfect place and people didn't have to worry about time, cost, anything else, you, you, you could have a different approach to this. But when, when we're dealing with the world that I live in every day, if we don't make these kinds of concessions, and we, and we can basically because, again, the amount of BPA that somebody has to be exposed to in order to cause the problems that it has been loosely linked with in the medical literature. I mean, people are going to have to eat the cans themselves and, and down quite a few of them over, over a short period of time. So, so we want to get them doing the right thing so that they don't just conclude, you know, cheeseburgers and french fries are a whole lot easier than all of this. I'll be back if I'm half dead. If I'm ever like those patients in the movie where I'm taking 11 drugs and two injections, I think I'm going to die, I'll come on back and see you. So... Our approach here is perhaps a little bit different. It might not be what you wanted me to say about it, but I think it's very important that people not listen to interviews like this and just conclude there's just no way I can possibly do this. I mean, I've got to learn a new way of shopping and cooking, and and it's all going to be different to begin with, and now we just add a lot of layers of difficulty that just make it sometimes it's the breaking point. Not sometimes. A lot of times it's the breaking point. We We get a lot of people here who said, I've tried to do this before, and I think one of the problems was it just was not a realistic plan for me. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's, that's well, what I have to say to about it. You could, you could disagree with me, but I, that's that's what we do here. Yeah, it's really good to have the opinions and the clarity that, you know, from your experience, that is exactly what we're looking for. And if if people were to take it to another level, say, for instance, they've been doing the entry-level work with, you know, uh, adjusting their diets, um, what would there be another level that you would take it to that you would, you know, perhaps would you start, you know, introducing new spices into someone's diet or something like that? Well, I think that the, the the action here is to is to get people to first do this, and then there aren't any magical spices that that make this significantly more health promoting. So I think the the first phase of this is to get people away from eating foods that are clearly harmful, and, and so you might say that in the beginning it's more about avoiding than it is anything else, and then the next part closely following that is is more about choosing optimally. So we've been avoiding dairy, we've been avoiding oil, we've been limiting our animal foods intake. So now let's start focusing on getting more vegetables in the diet. How can how can we sneak a couple more salads in there? How can we how can we get some more green food in there? How can we you know get a little more fruit in the diet, get it more nutrient dense? And then perhaps the next step after that 
is um, is is working on some variety so that there's some stickability to it because in the beginning people will do simple things just because it's easy to do but they'll get bored with eating you know how many how many sweet potatoes are you going to eat before it just gets a little bit tiresome when you're used to a much more varied diet so our next step is actually um, let's we, we call it trough eating. Let's let's teach you how to make a few dishes on Sunday um, that uh, that you can munch on throughout the week and and um, uh, and, and, the, and because you're going to make them on Sunday or Saturday or whatever day it is that you could set aside two or three hours to do this, you, you can be just a tiny bit more ambitious than the microwave vegetables. And then and then from there. If they have some interest in exploring ethnic foods and that sort of thing, we offer a lot of cooking classes and resources here that can help them with it. But, but um, we we also have to focus on and and um, and this is very important that when people come in here, diet is important for them, but it is by itself not going to fix most of the people who come in here. Um, and so we have to we have an awful lot of other things to pay attention to before we can start talking about spices and all this other stuff. I mean, if you're taking psychiatric drugs, for example, um, they they cause you to gain weight, they interfere with sleep, they bring on type two diabetes. So the diet is not even going to help you unless we can get you off those drugs, which means that you've got to find the right type of therapist who can help you to address the issues that never were addressed when you were all drugged up, and then. Um, uh, go through a withdrawal process, and sometimes it can take quite a long time. So, so again, we're trying to keep our eye on the on the important balls here. All right, which are um, that we get people to convert their diet, and we pay attention to the other things that are going on in their lives, like drugs and exercise or lack thereof, and knee injuries and all kinds of things that have to do with their health. That if we don't fix them, not much is going to change, even if they were to eat beans that came from the BPH free cans or BPA or whatever cans. So so uh, it, it, we, we have a pretty full plate with a lot of the people in here. And um, and unraveling all of that is the withdrawing them from useless medications, you know, that kind of thing. So, so we're trying to pay attention to all that stuff at the same time, too. Wonderful. So you you mentioned a moment ago about how um, there there is a list of um, there's a list of of things for people to avoid. I don't know if we talked a whole lot about that, but would you mention a few of those things? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. Let's. It's probably easier to explain in the context of how we explain our eating plan. So um, we use a pyramid, and uh, I didn't like that for a long time because I thought the USDA used food pyramids and. And, and screwed it all up pretty well, but it actually is a great diagram because our folks can look at that scheme and compare their eating plan to it and know exactly where they stand. So at the bottom of the pyramid is 64 ounces of water, and then the next rung up is lots of um, uh, starchy foods like beans and grains and, and um, the potatoes, squashes, uh, corn, that kind of family of foods, and then vegetables and then fruit. And then above fruit is minimally processed uh, foods like pastas and cereals, that sort of thing. Again, that short ingredient list we talked about. Um, above that is uh, high-fat plant foods, which are it's a pretty tiny spot on the pyramid, so avocados and nuts and seeds, which uh, we have some rules for eating those, which we can talk about. No oils. Um, 
And then animal foods two to three times a week. It has to be organic if it's a land animal, wild caught if it's a fish, no dairy. And then at the very tippy top is treats. It's a pretty tiny speck on our pyramid. And treats are for special occasions and birthdays. So, you know, if it's your birthday, you're going to have some cake. And if it's uh, Valentine's Day, you might have some chocolate. New Year's Eve is a good time for champagne. But the reason my office is full is because people treat themselves, you know, 15 times a day. <laughs> so oh. we want to get that. <laughs> we want to get that relegated to the special occasions. And so that gives you an idea of of how this works and uh, or how it works here. And um, if we, we try to make this, again, a sustainable plan that people can stick with. So we try to avoid things like extracting promises. I'm never going to eat white sugar again. Well, you know, when somebody's 30 years old, what do you think are the odds that they're going to survive to 100 and never touch the stuff? Non-existent, all right? So we don't yes. extract promises we know people can't keep. So the key is we, we stay away from the silly phrases that people use in the nutrition business like, um, you know, practice moderation and and don't eat so much of this and try to eat more of that. I mean, those are just silly, meaningless phrases. We have very, very clear line-in-the-sand rules, but we also try to make the plan something that an individual can commit to and have a higher likelihood of adhering to. So dessert is not forbidden. Dessert is for special occasions. And alcohol is not forbidden, it's for special occasions. And nuts are not forbidden, it's to eat when they come in a recipe for a dish, not to reach your hand in the bag and, and grab them. So uh, it's, the, it's the way that things are used uh, in many cases. I think the two big forbidden things are oil, three forbidden things, oil, dairy, and conventionally grown animal foods. You just can't have them in the diet. But other than that, we can probably figure out a way for everything else to to happen. Would you talk a little bit about the oil? Because I know that, you know, there are some people who, who feel that uh, coconut oil or olive oil are good, but what what is your philosophy on that? Well, the evidence is clear that it's not. I mean, the first problem that you have with oil is, is an easy one to explain because it's all about math. Two-thirds of the people in this country are overweight or obese. Oil is pure liquid fat. It has 130 calories per tablespoon and 14 grams of fat per tablespoon. Now, to tell you how weight-promoting it is, I'm, I'm pretty lean. I'm 5'7", a little taller, actually, and 130 pounds. And, um, and I eat a clean diet. I, but we have a yoga studio and a gym here, so exercise for me is really easy to do, and I'm pretty physically active. But if I added a, an oil-based salad dressing to my diet um, once a day, I would gain 37 pounds in a year if I didn't change something else, all right? I have to take the the calories out of the diet someplace else. Well, I like the foods that I eat. I don't want to restrict my my calorie intake. I can't exercise more than six or seven days a week. I mean, I don't know how you do it more than once a day, right? So And and keep running a company the size of this one. So the, the first issue is just a mathematical one, and a lot of people can't lose weight or say they can't lose weight even on an exclusively plant-based diet because they're just eating too many calories and too much of it's coming from fat. And it's the oils and the spaghetti sauces and the dressings and the cooking and the packaged foods that's, that's you know, I've, I've, I've scanned some of these food journals and identified as much as 800 calories a day in pure liquid fat. So that's the first problem. The second problem is one that is a lot more insidious because you don't notice it going on. I mean, if you get, if I gain 37 pounds, I'm going to notice it, and so will everybody else who sees me, right? The part about oils that people don't notice is that um, the plaques in the arteries that lead to heart attacks and strokes and 
all those kinds of uh, fun diseases to have. Um, those are made up of all, ki- all types of fat. It's not just saturated fat. It's uh, polyunsaturated fat, monounsaturated fat. So while you're dipping your bread in olive oil and cooking in olive oil, all that fat's going to those plaques too. So if you're looking for some ways to increase your risk of a heart attack or stroke, putting those oils in the diet's a great way to do it. Um, and then there, there's another issue too, which has to do with the overall percentage of fat in the diet leading to higher risk of diseases like cancer, autoimmune diseases, inflammatory bowel diseases, gallbladder disease, and, and the list goes on. So all of that combined makes a pretty strong argument for getting the oils out of the diet. The other thing that I'll tell you is that um, people tend to believe what they're told, and that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate in politics. It's unfortunate in health. Uh, but if you take a good look at the research that um, uh, supposedly, and I, I say that deliberately, supposedly supports the use of oils, um, in the diet, it is it's strikingly sparse and not very positive. Um, so, and, and I'll give you an example. The, the study that that hit the, it was the front page of the New York Times on the value of the Mediterranean diet. Boy, if, if this study was so definitive, they had to stop it early because the people eating the Mediterranean diet with fats and oils were so much better off. Okay, so I read the study. I had to check three times to make sure I was reading the study they wrote about in the New York Times. Okay. So in this study, they had like 7,000 and some patients, and the olive oil companies and the nut companies sponsored it. That's the first red flag. The low-fat dieters were eating a diet. They, they, they lowered their fat from 39% to 37%. I mean, the, the things that were wrong with the study, I can't begin to tell you. It would take the greater part of the rest of the afternoon to point out the flaws. But the bottom line is, at the end of the day, here's the problem. The, um, the, 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 the people who were eating oil, pure liquid fat, had a 1% lower risk of having an event than the people who were eating the other diet, the regular diet. For nuts, it was six-tenths of a percent reduction. Now, without getting into a detailed conversation about statistics, the bottom line is that had the cohort been smaller, it wouldn't have even shown up. The only thing that even caused this to get the statistical significance was the fact that they had so many people, which since it was sponsored by the um, nut companies and the olive oil companies, I'm sure that they had smart people involved in structuring this that knew that they were going to need seven or 8,000 people to show anything at all. But that doesn't, to me, sound like a striking endorsement <laughs> for the value of pure liquid <laughs> fat and nuts in the daily diet. Oh, wow. That's in, that's incredible information. Well, I, I know our time is about to run out, but I do want to know, what can you reduce, can you tell us how would you reduce um, high blood pressure with diet? Well, the first thing is we have to define high blood pressure. A lot of people think they have hypertension and they don't. I mean, and, and, and the reason I say that, I mean, normal used to be 140 over 90. Then it went down to 120 over 80. Um, now we're medicating people who aren't 110 over 70. This is, this is called disease mongering, and it's happened with thyroid disease and diabetes. And, and every time that the drug companies can ratchet down the threshold for diagnosis just a little bit, they, they make about $5 billion more dollars that year. Okay, so, so the first thing is, do you really have hypertension, and are you a candidate for medication if you do? And uh, the studies are pretty clear that when we medicate people before their sustained blood pressure reaches 160 over 100, we're killing off more of them than we're helping. Um, So that's the first thing. But having said that, if you want to lower your blood pressure, you have to drink a lot of water, eat a diet like the one I described, and um, exercise and get your weight down. 
and uh, blood pressure drops a lot when you do those things. Um, it'll bounce up some when you get off the medications, and you may not achieve what the, the targets are, and that, that's, that's become a big issue. We could do another whole show on this, but, but the bottom line is that people will get their blood pressure down to 140 over 90 on a plant-based diet and think they still need to take meds because it isn't quote-unquote normal. Actually, they're better off at 140 over 90 on a plant-based diet, no meds, than they are at 110 over 70 taking a beta blocker or uh, an ACE inhibitor. So, um, you know, part of what we have to deal with when people come in here is to figure out if they're even sick. You know, we get a lot of sick people here, but we get a lot of people who think they're sick who aren't. And uh, those are the happy days when I can look across the table from somebody and say, you don't really have cancer. I mean, please don't sign up for treatment. <laughs> you don't have it. <laughs> you are not hypertensive. Please don't let anybody drug you up. And you, I just told somebody yesterday, you don't have diabetes. I mean, whoever looked at your blood test results and told you you had diabetes is crazy. Go home. Have a wonderful life. Keep doing what you're doing. Please don't come back here unless you want to take me to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Now tell us about, there are recipes on your website, right? Yeah, we do have a lot of recipes on our website. And um, and I put a recipe in my newsletter every Monday. So if people want to sign up for my newsletter, they get a recipe every Monday. And the recipes are, are done by our, our uh, award-winning and New York Times best-selling chef and one of my business partners, Chef Del Shrove. Um, so he has a new cookbook coming out this year. They'll have even more fabulous stuff in it. And and the value of the recipes, like I said, once we get people to the place where they're they're through the avoiding stage, now they're through the choosing optimally stage, and now it's like let's make food interesting. That's when this can be really fun, and it doesn't necessarily have to be incredibly time-consuming. Um, so you pick some dishes that just look extraordinary and make them, and you start to feel that food has pleasure. Food is pleasure again, and there's nothing the matter with that, you know. And and I think that's an important point to make is that whether you're doing this because you need to recover from disease or lose weight or just because you're a busy executive and you're saying, hey, I want to be like that Dr. Pam Popper and, you know, high energy at 11 p.m., the key is that this can be a fabulous taste experience, too. I I think people sometimes think I live on pine cones and tree bark, and I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I eat delicious food all day long, and I love eating. Um, I think it's normal to love eating. I love enjoying good food, and... um, and it's gotten a lot easier, and I think Chef Dell's recipes make that deliciousness available to everybody at home. Oh, how exciting. So tell us your website again. It's, it's wellnessforumhealth.com, and if uh, anybody wants to email me, my email address is pampopper at msn.com. I answer all my emails personally, and I, I uh, get back to you within 24 to 36 hours. And thank you so much. You are so kind to share this wisdom with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It was fun. You're a good interviewer. I enjoyed this. Okay, thank you. And, Claire, you did a great job. Thanks for helping. Oh, thanks. Yes, and and, uh, Dr. Popper, um, many blessings and and much gratitude to you for all the work you're doing. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Be well, everyone. Thank you. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, 
and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.